Welcome to Grand New Podcast. It is a snow day. It is a yes. snow day. The Roanoke Valley is shut down. Manassas is shut down. Elliot Miara is, is Virginia Beach shut down. You know, Virginia Beach is interesting. When the rest of the snow get the rest of the state gets snow and ice, Virginia Beach gets water and rain. In some ways, I kind of envy that because there's nothing better than a fresh snowfall. But right now, we have rain coming at us sideways, so that's not enjoyable in any way, shape, or form. Well, today is a snow day in the western half of Virginia, and also in the northern half of Virginia. So Mike and I are at home. Oh yeah, enjoying a nice warm day. And we have our friend, Delegate Jason Miares. Delegate Miares is running for Virginia Attorney General. And also, little known fact, former contributor of Bering Drift, um, long time ago, long time ago. So That's right. I had forgotten about that. I you did. were, Jason? I, I didn't know that. I long think I wrote ago. a column. Uh, I think if I recall, I wrote a column uh, bashing Hugo Chavez or something. It's been a long time. That was probably... So, Seven or friend eight years of, ago. Friend of the podcast. He gets friend of the podcast. Tyler. All right. <laughs> so, Jason, you're running for Virginia Attorney General. Let's let's hit your top three reasons why you're running for Virginia Attorney General. Because one of the things, Jason agreed to come on and we don't get to talk politics the entire time. So let's get that out of the way first. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you, I think it is important for your listeners to know uh, a little bit of my worldview and where I come from that gives me an idea of what I, how I view this, both this country and the kind of size, scope, and role of government, right? And I, I tell people that, you know, my, my story doesn't begin in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I represent. It actually begins in Havana, Cuba, when a scared 19-year-old girl got on an airplane, literally penniless and homeless, not knowing where her next meal was going to come from. And that was my mother, Mir Miares, and when you're raised in a household of somebody who literally experienced five plus years of living in Castro's socialist paradise, it gives you a great appreciation for what this country is, because my mother came to this country realizing this was not a nation, a land of oppression, this was a land of opportunity, and, you know, she, she told me recently, she said, you know, the joke in Cuba quickly became when Castro took power that his revolution was like a watermelon, it was green on the surface, but as soon as he got power and he peeled it back, it was red, because you know, they, they started doing everything that we know the left likes to do, the far left. And, you know, my mom said, you know, listen, the, the rhetoric that I used to hear in Havana in the 1960s, I'm now hearing by the, a major political party, the Democratic Party. And, and you know, words like you didn't build that. Right. Um, yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth Warren. So when Castro took power, they immediately in the name of fairness and equity uh, started nationalizing, starting taking away people's businesses, taking away people's farms. And so the last thing that happened with my uh, with my mother is they came to her house uh, right before she left Cuba. They posted a notice on her door that said, you know, pr uh, property of the socialist revolution. And Matt, imagine this, everything in your home, every picture, every photograph, every piece of jewelry, anything that's any personal to you, that doesn't mean anything to anybody else, a personal birthday card, a Valentine's Day card. Everything is taken from you all in the name of fairness and equity. Any money you had in your bank account that maybe you wanted to pass on to your, your children or future children, all that's taken from you. And so they, uh, they literally take away your passport too. So my mother got on that airplane, literally stateless, um, ended up in Spain, eventually got to this country. But she fled Cuba in the fall of 1965, literally with a clothes on her back and almost 50 years to the day that she fled Cuba, she was able to vote for me to represent her in the oldest democracy in the Western Hemisphere. 
And that's what I like to call the American miracle, right? And my mother came here, she could have gone to a lot of countries, she could have stayed in Europe, but she ultimately came to America because she understands our constitution is the first document in recorded history that actually limits what government can do to its citizens. It doesn't empower government, it limits governments and it empowers individuals and their freedom. And I think people have to understand that, that mindset. And when I was growing up outside of um, Christmas, July 4th is the most important holiday of the year because I was raised intuitively uh, to appreciate that I could breathe the air as a free American. Uh, but I think we recognize and readers of Bearing Drift recognize and listeners of this podcast recognize that the American miracle that we all know uh, that has provided more hope and more opportunity to more people from different countries, different backgrounds, different races, different faiths, is really being challenged in a way we've never seen a challenge before. Uh, when you have close to 50% of young people say we should amend the First Amendment to ban speech that maybe they find offensive, that tells me we have an entire generation of young people that don't have a clear grasp of what our Constitution, our founding documents, and the liberties they are that, that provide. And so you can't have the American miracle um, if you don't have things like election integrity. Uh, you have to have a position where you are confident that one man versus one vote. I have a dear friend back home uh, who's Indian American who called me in a panic last year because he went to go vote and somebody had voted in his place. And as he told me, he cast a provisional ballot, but he said, you know, most my vote got canceled. At most, my vote got canceled by somebody else who used my identification to vote in my place. Uh, you can't have the American miracle when you talk about the issues you want to care about as attorney general, where you have this perverse system where you have uh, two systems right now, a system for uh, elites and the media and politicians and a system for everybody else. And by that, I mean, uh, we saw this past summer in Richmond and all across the country where people were literally destroying small businesses in the name of protest, where um you know, because the governor and the attorney general and the mayor of Richmond all agreed with the political aims of the people doing this destruction, nobody was ever prosecuted. That's the opposite of what are the bulwarks of American society, which is equal protection, equal justice in the law and justice is blind. It doesn't matter what your political um, motive is. If you break a law, uh, you should be prosecuted. Instead, you have small business owners that literally are they're the first ones to get there in the morning or the last ones to leave at night. They had their entire livelihood destroyed and nobody was ever held accountable to it. You can't preserve our system and faith that people have in our government if you can't have that. I think the third is um, when you look at what the American miracle is, is a lot of it is to come down to safety for your family. I mean, you have a criminal justice system and a far left contingency in Richmond. When I say far left, I mean, they think they represent Vermont. I know there's people like Lee Carter who maybe want to model Virginia after uh, the socialism you see in Bernie Sanders or Venezuela, but the bottom line is you have a, a far left. I'll give you an example of the parole board. Uh, for your listeners and those watching, I mean, what do you think of when you hear life without the possibility of parole? I mean, when I hear that, I think they're not going to be back out on the street, but you had literally um, the parole board just let out this year, Vincent Martin. Vincent Martin had uh, committed multiple armed robberies. He got sentenced to 30 years in prison. He gets out after six years. His first year he's out, he commits another armed robbery. He's stopped at the traffic stop uh, by young Michael Connors, 23-year-old Richmond police officer, didn't realize he was leaving an armed robbery. 
shot Michael Connors in the neck while Michael Connors is on the ground struggling for his life. Vincent Martin stood over his struggling body and executed him and shot, shot him three times in the head. He was given life without the possibility of parole. Vincent Martin's back on the street today. And when the media asked him if he had any regrets, he simply said, nope. You know, you have Gregory Joyner uh, right up the road from you, um, Matt Lynchburg, uh, who, you know, he strangled, raped, and murdered 15-year-old Sarah Jameson. Uh, he was given life without the possibility of parole. Two years ago, the parole board said, this man is dangerous. He's a threat to society. Do not let him out. Gregory Joyner's back on our street. Sarah Jameson was 15. So she never even got to celebrate prom, but this guy's going to spend the next 40 years in his life getting to celebrate Thanksgiving and spending time with his family. So this criminal first mindset that we have right now, where they're doing everything in their power to let out criminals early back on our streets, uh, they're trying to at the same time criminalize hundreds of thousands of law-abiding Virginians only because of the type of firearm they want to choose to protect themselves and their family. It's misplaced priorities. We know the actions and the, the policies that actually work to make Virginians safe. We know that this General Assembly and this governor and this attorney general are doing everything in their power opposite of them. Well, Jace, Jason, um, I'm, I'm glad you got And you to... can see if you get me talking, I'm hard to stop. So you oh, can interrupt no, no, me anytime no, I want. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm really glad that you shared uh, the story of your mother. And I was, just about, I was just about to ask you, how must it make you feel? That, for example, you brought up Lee Carter. Full disclosure to our viewers, I am running against him uh, for the House of Delegates. You brought up Lee Carter, who's an entitled Lyft driver who had to Google what the word socialism was in 2017 and said, you know what? This is for me. And this is for me to enforce on others. The fact that your mother fled mm. Cuba, yeah. the, a real oppressive regime. And the only oppression Lee Carter probably has ever had is, I, I don't know, he got locked out of his video game account or something like that. How must it make you feel when he and others like him are pushing these policies in America's first example of democracy? It, and the Democrats aren't stopping this guy. It, it's amazing that, you know, not, not surprisingly, the people that are most opposed to socialism are the people that have actually lived in their socialism. Um. I don't care if you're Cubano, I don't care if you're Nicaraguan, uh, or Venezuelan. Uh, the, the bottom line is once the state comes in, the bigger the state, the smaller the man. And the fact is, uh, my frustration is we literally, I had a, uh, we had a resolution that would be recognizing the victims of communism. As you know, over 20 million people cherish, perish in the 20th century mm -hmm. from that horrible autocratic regime. And I need to remind everybody, it was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was what the USSR stood for. Um, and Lee Carter tried to take a walk. He literally got up from his desk and didn't want to vote in a resolution recognizing the 20 million people that died from one of the most murderous ideologies we've ever seen on this planet, which I thought was such a telling moment, right? Uh, because once truth becomes a casualty and once ideas matter more than people, as we've seen throughout all of human history, that oftentimes people end up at the end of the day being on at the butcher's block. So it's infuriating to me to see it. It's infuriating for me to see Lee Carter trying to continue uh, regularly on social media defending the same kind of policies that actually lead to disparity and poverty. Because ultimately we all, you know, Mike and Matt, we all ultimately, we, we believe in, in human beings and their ability to rise above their station, but also we wanna allow them to, 
to, to have those tools that they could do so. We also absolutely don't want government to be dictating to them every aspect of their life. I mean, my mother had vivid memories of being at the University of Havana and she wanted to study medicine. She wanted to be a doctor. Well, guess what? The individual doesn't matter in a collective estate. It's all about the, the state, right? So they told her, no, we don't need you to be a doctor. I'm sure, right? I'm you, sure that they yeah. told you a taxi driver in Cuba makes more than a doctor. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they do. They make more than a yeah. doctor, but, but you don't have the ability to pursue your own life and your own dreams and your own individual pursuits because it's all about the needs of the state and the collective. So she was told she had to take classes in Marxist-Leninism and not biology because they didn't need, uh, in this case, they didn't, they didn't want her to be a doctor. And so that is the, ultimately the problem. I think it's misplaced. I think a lot of young people, they hear the word socialist, but they, you know, I think part of our problem as conservatives is we stopped explaining mm -hmm. after the Berlin Wall fell and we had an entire generation that emerged. And so I love to talk to young people any chance I get. And I like to point out that the year Fidel Castro took power in Cuba had the same GDP as Italy. And the year Fidel Castro died, he had, uh, Cuba had the same GDP as Sudan. Uh, socialism ultimately, as Margaret Thatcher said, always runs out of other people's money. And, um, but we Look know this. Venezuela. Venezuela. Uh, but I also know this about young people, and this is why I'm so hopeful. One, once you talk to them about American exceptionalism, it's almost like a, a thirsty man in, in the desert who finds a glass of water. Uh, they intuitively understand it. And, um, and I think that's just quite important. And I remind folks all the time, because I have conservative friends that kind of uh, get down on uh, the next generation. I refuse to do so, partly because I think of the potential. Look right now, it's happening in Hong Kong. Think about that. Yep. The people that are literally literally risking their life, standing up to the communist Chinese, waving our flag. Singing our anthem. Singing our anthem, talking about and speaking about our Declaration of Independence. They're all young people. Well, That's a bravery. And God bless them for that. Well, and the thing about it is, uh, Jason, is we have this new alignment in the Republican. This thing right now in the Republican Party, you know, in 2020, they told us we were going to lose the minority vote. We were going to lose Hispanics. We were going to lose, we're going to lose, we're going to lose. And then you get to South Florida and you, you look at people, you know, Donna Shalala was the uh, Clinton's health and human services secretary, got elected to yeah. Congress and then got beat like a drum mm -hmm. for her congressional seat. Mm -hmm. You know, we made gains in South Florida. And these Governor are young DeSantis people, too. These are young people these coming out. These are young people. And I think that they've lived, they've lived the life that you lived and that your mom lived. And they mm -hmm. saw what these regimes did. And they realized 50 years on the back end. And they see where America's headed. And we're like, we can't do that. Well, and and, and Matt, Floridians never forget. I think that's kind of the other thing, Jason. I'm sure like your mom reminds you like oh in Florida, <laughs> everybody's <laughs> reminding everybody. And I, I would say if Florida could figure out, could figure it out. So can Virginia, Jason, I'm, I'm curious. I think socialism takes root, unfortunately, in young people, because if you look, whether it's Lee Carter, AOC, the definition of democratic socialism means something entirely different. So Lee Carter, like AOC says, if you believe in firemen, that's socialism. If you believe in public That's school, so foolish. if exactly, if uh, Lee Carter said, if 12 like, people organize at a diner for a union, that's socialism. No, it's That's not. not. So socialism is about the state owning the means of production. 
which I think is ironic that that you had the prime minister of Denmark who literally came over and visited the United States last year when socialism and Bernie Sanders all the rage saying, by the way, we're not a socialist country. We're a capitalist country. We're proud of it. By the way, if you're a business, come to Denmark. Yeah, Uh, I think this is important. This is why I have a lot of faith in young people. Um, You know, I was talking some to some young students and I pointed out, you know, this is this iPhone. Uh, has as much computing power as the entire Apollo astronaut program to put a man on the moon that in the 1960s, the computing power right here I'm holding in my hand was the equivalent of four square city blocks. And I go through the young people, I said, let's just look at the free apps. You know, you could download any song from any artist, any recording artist instantaneously. I could download on my Kindle app here on my phone, any book from any author. I can, I could download, I can FaceTime with a friend in Europe. I can type in the address and it'll tell me exactly what time I'm supposed to show up in New York City. I have another app where I could scan a barcode of a good on a shelf in a store and it'll tell me within a 20 mile radius if I can get it cheaper. And I, and I point out, this is, this is brought to you by free market capitalism. And now compare this, which all of these apps, these are all free apps are desperately trying to meet your needs and your desires. Compare this right here, which is something out of the Jetsons. If you said in the 1960s, you would have this just walking around in your pocket, nobody believe you. Now compare this to the last time you went to your DMV or the last time you went to the post office. Now, which do you think- Or the last time you're trying to get a vaccine rolled out by the state. Right, or by the government. (laughs) Because ultimately, if there's no competition, things lead to atrophy. I don't care if it's in private sector. That's why I believe- Competition's good, but I don't care where it is. If there's not competition, things are going to ultimately atrophy because you have no incentive to improve. The people that put the apps on this phone are constantly trying to improve because if they don't, somebody's going to come by better. But DMV and our post office, they don't have competition. They don't have to improve. So they don't do anything innovative uh, to try to meet your individual needs. They basically have the same model. They've been in place for how many decades? So young people intuitively, they live by apps, they live by instantaneous. And the more they encounter government, the more they're gonna realize so often, government's not able to meet what they're so used to meeting when they order something on Grubhub or you know a movie or Netflix or pick, pick, pick the issue. So uh, I'm confident and I'm excited in many ways because I think the challenges for our generation, that's why I think things like podcasts and others are different, are so important because you gotta be able to reach the next generation. Uh, and we're gonna to have to make sure we do things differently uh, but to, to the last point, uh, you know, for, uh, both Texas and Florida are more racially diverse than Virginia. So I see zero reason why the Republican Party shouldn't be. We should be competitive. And if you particularly see how far left this General Assembly and this governor and attorney general have been, I think absolutely we have a chance to be incredibly competitive and win this year. As I like to say, we're ready for the great Virginia comeback uh, in 2021. Well, Jason, that brings me to my question, um, you know, regarding the attorney general's race. Um, We have an attorney general who continuously argues for the growth of the state. Very activist attorney general. Um, And I think he's actually ballooned and bloated the position. What will you do to scale back that overreach that Herring has put in place as a precedent? He is running. I don't know much about Jay Jones what he's about, but assuming Herring is going, you're going to be facing him on the ballot. Yeah. I think Mark Herring's biggest problem is he's basically become Virginia's Eric Holder and he's politicized that office. There's not a left-wing issue that he hasn't tackled. 
there's parts of our laws and parts of the Virginia code he just refuses to defend because uh, he doesn't agree with it philosophically. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I think the first thing you have to do is, as uh, Virginia Attorney General is make sure you follow the U.S. Constitution and the Virginia Constitution. And think about he's an activist for all the wrong issues. But you know where he's been completely silent on? Reopening our schools. Yeah. Your, your listeners may not realize, but while you do not have a right to an education in the U.S. Constitution, you do have a right to an education under the Virginia Constitution. And right now you have these school boards that are completely in the grips of teachers unions that are not reopening. And I was just with uh, Mike Cherry, great candidate running for delegate up in Colonial Heights last night. He shared with me that they did a survey of the public school system in Colonial Heights where close to 40% of the young people were saying they've had suicidal iterations or thoughts in the last 12 months. We're now 300 days and counting of um, our school closures. And we've seen such a drastic, I mean, devastating impact on our children's mental health. Uh, but you have the teachers unions that are all saying, listen, we don't, the Fairfax Teachers Union, largest teachers union in the state says, we don't think we should have in-person instruction, even if every single teacher gets vaccinated. Now, you and I both know there's not, because what they say is we want all of our children, all the children vaccinated too. Well, there's not an FDA approved vaccine for anybody under the age of 16. So they're really talking about having school closures through, through, through 2022. And I'm glad you're drawing that distinction because the teachers I know, the teachers want to go back. Mm-hmm. The teachers want to go back. We are willing to do whatever it takes for our kids. Um, and, and the unions uh, do not. I, I mean, that's, that's, the real, that's the real key. Um, I mean, especially we're always told to follow the science and science is showing that children aren't really susceptible. Look, I went back right now. I'm online, but I went back for three weeks and my experience was actually very good. Um, I didn't feel in danger. The kids were the kids had their masks. Everyone was distancing. It was great. Um, My only concern was some people, uh, some of the other teachers mingling. I think that's where the issue comes up for spreading. We just got to be smarter about that. But we could 100 percent go back to school because I've seen it. Well, I think one of the things I want to bring up is that the Second Amendment has just been, you know, if you're a Second Amendment supporter of Virginia right now, it's just it's horrible. Um, You know, and the thing that frustrates me the most and I tell this to everybody who runs for office, I had to have pass a background check for the feds to buy my firearm, had to pass one with the state, had to pass a, take a class, then pass another background check to get my concealed carry. How many more background checks do you want? Do you want to check my third grade report cards, see if I can own a semi-automatic pistol? I mean, you know, Jason, what's going on here? Ultimately, it's about the fact that you have a lot of people there that don't trust uh trust free citizens to make free decisions and it really is telling because we know the second amendment in some ways many ways guarantees the first every single autocratic regime on the planet always tries to disarm its population and then i like to say that you know what separates us from most of the people that woke up even this morning on the planet is is this right here it's that knock on the door right and for us, when we hear that, that, that doesn't get any of us. We don't, our hearts don't start racing when we hear that. It's somebody there to show up or Amazon Prime dropping something off or whatever. But most of the people woke up this morning and hear this. That means something entirely different. It means the government's there to take you away because you worship God in a manner they disagree with. You speak out against the government or 
They're looking for your firearms. My mother has distinct memories. When Bay of Pigs happened, my uncle was an anti-Castroite. And so the first thing the Cuban government did is anybody they suspected that may rise up in, in rebellion, they went out to arrest them. So they showed up in the middle of the night, knocked on that door. What was the first question they asked? Where are your guns? All right. That's the first thing that any autocratic regime always seeks to do. And you have a lot of these um, elected leaders that um, the great irony is they are pushing policies that are actually going to raise uh, the crime rate in Virginia by letting out the early release of violent offenders and, a ho and allowing criminals and rapists and murderers to get back on our street. And yet at the same time, they're pushing measures that are gonna disarm and make it harder for Virginians to be able to defend themselves. So that's the great irony. If you look statistically, you've literally had in the last 20 years in this country, gun ownership has skyrocketed. You, you literally have had almost double the number of guns being owned by private citizens. But over the last 20 years, you look at a graph, gun violence has actually been on a 20 year downward trajectory. So for your listeners, if your proposition is, well, just more guns equals more crimes, that should make no sense to you. But those of us that know, know the best way to lower gun violence is you take that small subset of criminals that use guns in the commission of felonies and you go after those criminals. You put those felons behind prison. When you get the small subset to continually commit crime and violent crime and you get them off the street, I'll give you an example. Mark Herring, Project Exile was an incredibly successful program. If I recall, it was started by former Attorney General Jim Gilmore. But Project Exile was a, 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 a program supported by the NRA and law enforcement that said if you use a, a firearm in the commission of a felony, you get an automatic five years, right? Mandatory minimum added to your sentence. And I, and I believe, let me interject here. Yeah. This was, Project Exile was excellent because if you got picked up by the state of Virginia, the feds were waiting on you in the courtroom right. to pick you right back up exactly. on your federal charge. So it exactly. was great. It was a and, you've, and that's the thing, the thing we also want out of our attorney generals, you've got to work with the feds, right. especially well, your U.S. attorneys, your marshals. And that's, you're exactly that's right. so important. Such well, important. to show you how outrageous what Mark Herring did is the, the successor program, the Project Exile, uh, he refused to engage in it because part of the requirements from uh, the previous administration was that you also needed to be able to notify ICE if there was somebody that was um, here illegally. And so he would rather than take federal money to combat gun violence, he said no, because he, he didn't want to have to deal with the requirement to notify ICE. So those are exactly the type of smart policies. Go after the felons and the criminals. Don't go after law-abiding citizens that have not done uh, anything to deserve suddenly becoming a felon overnight. And, um, you know, we know the Second Amendment is not about hunting. The Second Amendment is about your individual God-given right to be able to defend yourself and your family. And uh, oh. there's a lot of people in Richmond who don't understand that. So one last political question, and then All we'll right. get on stuff. Attorney General is mainly an administrator of the biggest lawyer's office in Virginia. That's, in, in the long and the short of it, that's the main thing. Can you speak to your qualifications as an attorney and as what you've done in your career to be able to manage the largest legal firm in Virginia? Well, it, it is an office of about 300 uh, attorneys. 
but it also handles every single criminal appeal coming out from our wonderful prosecutors. So I was literally at the front line as a prosecutor in Virginia Beach. And I think that's absolutely critically important. You have an attorney general that has a background as a prosecutor, because that is a huge, huge component of what you have to handle, number one. Number two, I think it's absolutely critical that uh, as attorney general, you believe personnel is policy, right? That you put smart, good people that have the same view in your office, particularly in leadership positions, that have the same view about the size, scope, role in government, but also important that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Virginia Constitution. I think you absolutely also lead by example. I think that's going to be a critical component for anybody who leads that office. And I'll remind everybody that Mark Herring stated that Governor Ralph Northam was disqualified to lead uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia because of his blackface photos from college. And then five days after he said the governor had disqualified himself and was disqualified from his ability to lead, turns out he had his own blackface uh, photo. Well, I think part of the principle is leadership by example. So my hope is certainly that Mark Herring would consider following the same example and the same standard that he holds everybody else with himself. And I think a combination of all those makes me uniquely qualified to leave that office. Well, okay. So we've asked a lot of blah policy questions. Let's actually have some fun um, because it is a snow day and we're going to have there some you fun. Go. <laughs> Are you segwaying frozen, Matt? What? Snow day frozen? No frozen? No, 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 no. Because I, I've gotten to know Delia Miara's and he is a secret Star Wars nerd. Confession <laughs> of the Millennium. He's a secret Star Wars nerd. We talk oh, about secret. for about 20 minutes on the phone. And, you know, most of the time, most of the time when you talk to somebody, especially as an activist in the party, you expect the candidate to talk about their qualifications for the office and blah, blah. <laughs> I really hate that crap because I don't learn about the individual. And so we actually opened up and started talking about, so we have to ask the question, Delegate Miara's, favorite Star Wars movie and why? Go. Well, sub-question, do you think the new trilogy was crap? Uh, I'm not going to say crap, but I will say it was a disappointment compared to what I was expecting. I, I'd say my favorite movie, because I grew up with the original trilogy, will, will be Empire Strikes Back. Okay. That was the first movie I saw in the theater. Um, I was not old enough to go see the original Star Wars in the theater, but I saw Empire Strikes Back, which of course was mesmerizing. And then obviously the twist... I assume everybody that's listening knows, but the, the twist with, with the, the Vader uh, Walker saga. I'd say my second favorite, um, oh my gosh, it's, it's, I would say this, the um, Rogue One was an amazing movie. Yes. Rogue One captured the essence of the original trilogy, but then updated it to modern times. I thought they did a wonderful job storytelling it. I think part of my favorite part of Rogue One was if you think about it, it was the first time we really saw Vader go full Vader. Really? Right. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, just the very last 10 minutes of that movie where Vader gets on um, in the screen time, it was almost like, I know it was fan service, but it was fan service because it's what every single kid in the backyard with their Hasbro toys used to do with Vader, <laughs> which was he was this unstoppable force and I get yes. to be able to see but that. This is, on yes. the this is what killed me, Jason and Matt. The rest of the movie, 
completely forgettable. I can't remember one no, character's name, lies. but I remember no, 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 no. those last lies, 10 minutes. Lies and deceit. Lies. Those last no, 10 minutes I disagree, made Mike. the movie. No, 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 no. Here's why. The, the, the space battle was great. I thought they had a lot of tension. I liked the fact in a weird way that they wiped out all the characters. Um, it would have been a little bit satisfying to see maybe which they're making a solo series with one of them, but I thought that was a dramatic moment. Um, I, I love the tension. Uh, the I forget the name of the guy who was the, the bad guy that was the Death Star designer, but I thought he did a really good job. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I thought they had enough of Vader that just by you, and then the last 10 yeah. minutes were just awesome. Do so. you agree? I think the prequels, after the new Skywalker trilogy and everything else, I think the prequels deserve not only a second look, but a strong apology. No. Episode I'm not three. A fan. Episode Hail. three. Lies, okay. Michael. Okay. Michael. He, here's my problem with the prequels. I can go through a lot of them. Okay. The biggest problem with the prequels is one, have the same act, actor play Anakin Skywalker through all three movies. Two, it is it is a Greek tragedy. It's one of those things where the story is great because we all know how it ends. But the storyline could have been so much better. By that, I mean, you have the same actor. But did anybody ever identify with Anakin Skywalker? No. No. You could have had him been the hero in the first movie. Huh? Did you guys identify? Because Kylo, to me, captured that coldness that Anakin had. The the, the sequel movies were about Rey, which I thought was a pretty fascinating character. But as far as the prequels, what I don't like is it's almost like George Lucas – went to an elementary school and handed crayons to some kids and said, here, write my script. And I'm going to be worried about the special effects. What he didn't realize is what made the original trilogy so good was it was a timeless story. What would have made the prequels perfect was it was a Greek tragedy. And he forgot the fact that we needed to first identify and love Anakin. And that would have made us that much more upset when he fell and went to the dark side. The problem is, is this is nobody ever really identified with it. I never liked the guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't like him when he was a kid in the first movie. In the second movie, I thought he was whiny. He's going to be back now as I, I will, uh, Vader. In the I, I have series. heard that. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope. Now, I won't get agree with you this, Mike. Episode three was at least passable. I, there was there was definitely some seeds in episode three that were really, really good. I, I don't so, disagree with you on that. But well, I, let me ask yeah. you a question, Mike. Sure. This is another problem with the prequels. Give me the classic thing. They could have set it up. Storyline they could have set up would have been amazing. Imagine if this had changed a little bit. Darth Maul didn't get cut in half, escapes at the end of the first movie. Obi-Wan's now obsessed with his own feelings of revenge going after Darth Maul. And you finally set up, you lead up to the third movie, this epic Titanic Darth Maul versus Darth Vader battle of who would be the main Sith princess, right? That would have been amazing because you would have had a story arc of Obi-Wan understanding the struggles of how revenge is not going to satisfy anything. You would have had a great secondary story arc. And you had this epic, everybody would have been talking leading up to episode three of, I cannot wait to see Darth Maul, Darth Vader, Clash of the Titans, Go set go. Instead, here, you have the most innovative characters little... movie, and they kill them off. Why they kill the guy off? Well, but I know then, they brought again, him back. It's dumb how they brought him back. Clone they should never kill them off. To me, Clone Wars to me, like the animated show, patched a lot of that up, and kind of I was like, okay, I see where they're going. And now with the Obi Wan series, 
Darth Maul signed on. So now we're going to get that clash of Vader. Yeah, Mike, you will and- appreciate this. I have never watched a Clone Wars TV series, but my middle daughter, Elena, has convinced me. And oh, so we are, we are about halfway through season one. I'm just not home that often. Yeah. Many nights so I'm away. Have- but we're about halfway through season one. So I'm watching Rebels right now for the first I time. Hear, I've watched about two seasons of that. That's actually quite good. And, so Clone and so, Wars and Rebels, I would argue, is the best thing ever put out only because... No, no Mandalorian. Mandalorian. Yeah. Well, in, 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 Mandalorian. Terms of, in terms of this, though, in terms of you get that Clone Wars, you're able to explore a lot more of like that Greek tragedy element that we didn't see on screen. So it okay. t- I would argue with the prequels, the lightsaber was redefined by the prequels, and we all have to really attribute it to that. Episode one, the Darth Maul fight and the Anakin Obi Wan showdown are the best, arguably the best Star Wars scenes aside from the movies. The best Star Wars scenes we've got. Listen, would, the prequels had moments. You. The prequels had moments of brilliance. I just know it's one of those things where I, they had moments of brilliance, but you're just, in my opinion, they could have been so much sure. better. But what were you saying? I would Matt? argue the battle scene in Rogue One best ever. Yeah, that was pretty dog awesome. fight. The dog fighting, it was mm-hmm. excellent. But the Mandalorian just I I feel like it opened a whole new portal into Star Wars fandom. And I feel like it's such a good show. Well for bringing up the Mandalorian, Jason, were you uh were you crushed with the um, end, the end the ending, the final the final episode? Well, the final ending's amazing, but with Gina Carano now. Where oh yeah, go, the can the cancel culture. The cancel culture we live in right now is just so absurd. But the Mandalorian, I will tell you. It's so funny because I was dying. I know I sound like a total geek here, Matt, but when they made the yeah, new sequels, we, we I always I always loved Luke's green lightsaber. And I was so looking forward to in the sequel seeing Luke's green lightsaber. I never saw it. So that scene in The Mandalorian where I'm like, is it? Is it really? And of course, my daughters are going nuts, right? They're we're watching this. They're like, oh my gosh, it's Luke. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And when I first see that green lightsaber, I'm like, that's just amazing. And what I love about John Favreau is he's a director, but first he's a fan. He's a fan. And, yes. and, and that, and he knew as a fan, like he almost realized, you know what, there was something missing in the sequels. I'm going to give you what you were missing. And, and first time you really saw Luke go full, like bad a, right. I mean, that was pretty amazing. You never ever saw that in the original movie. And it was a hat tip to the rogue one scene because really it the was. mirror scenes. Have you seen that YouTube video where they have both of them up? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. I have not. Okay. Matt, you can find that on YouTube, but literally somebody took both of the scenes at the end of Rogue One and Luke, uh, of Darth Vader and Luke, and it's pretty, it was a total hat to. It, it's, it's pretty cool. It awesome. and, and I really, and that's why I would argue, so the sequel trilogy, well, I think I was more disappointed with that than the prequels because they set up Finn and then did nothing with them. Yeah. And then Finn was kind of cast aside. Then it became about Ray, which is fine. And then I thought bringing Palpatine back was really lazy. Yeah, they 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 really forced that in. I would love to know who you guys thought. I always thought Ray was going to be Luke and um, sorry, uh, Leia and Hans. Uh, well, Han and then did you hear the rumor it was supposed to be Obi Wan's granddaughter? See, here's what I would have done for talking Greek tragedy. That moment in Last Jedi when they team up to kill everybody. Yeah. I thought it would have been interesting if they were like, you know what? Instead of dark versus light, let's do this. Let's team up. And then we would have the old gang, Luke, 
Han, Leia trying to bring. Um, oh, Rey interesting. Back. Yeah. I, I find it fascinating, and we're getting real nerdy here. Like we know, but that's okay. It's sometimes nice to get into this world. So I'm watching, I'm watching Rebels now, and I'm getting into this whole gray Jedi thing. Yeah, and I, I like the more I find it, the more I like it. And I think we could have opened that whole portal in the sequel trilogy, and then J.J. Abrams and Ryan. You know what I would have liked to have seen done, and I, I may have mentioned it to you, Matt, but I thought there's this great untold story. It maybe has been written in some of the novels, but. Most people do not realize that that Anakin Skywalker is Darth Vader and therefore Luke Skywalker is Darth Vader's son. That was a closely held secret, right? Everybody knew Luke Skywalker was Anakin's son, but most people didn't realize Anakin was actually Darth Vader. So what happens when you're a famous icon and then somebody finds out that your father also was a monster? And I always thought that would have been a fascinating thing for them to struggle with. How would have the, the then the New Republic, how they would have all struggled with that? Because... Um, would they entrust him with the power of actually training a new generation, knowing his father had, at the time, was the most famous Jedi, had actually gone to the dark side? I don't think so. I think it would have, there was a whole narrative there that would have been fascinating to explore as well for Luke to deal with the ramifications, the fallout of the fact that your father basically ordered the destruction of an entire planet in the original, the original Star well, Wars. Well, I'll test I mean, both of your nerdiness. I don't know if you got – I was a fan of not only Star Wars comics, but the one-off books that they made. Did you guys read those? I read – I think I read the first of the Thrawn books. The Thrawn, yeah. And, and I didn't uh, read anything okay. after that because I realized Jason's I like the, the, the cinema. I like being able to see it on the screen. But one comic world that they did, one storyline, when Disney bought it, they were like, okay, none of this is canon, and they threw it all out. Although the Throne Wars, I think they're doing, they're going to do in the Mandalorian. Um, but they were talking about um, there was one interesting comic where Luke does succumb to the dark side and wears Darth Vader's armor basically without the helmet, and he wrestles with this even before the Great Jedi. This whole he's a Jedi with darkness, and he tries to combine the two forces. And he yes. fails, and his friends have to pull him that back. That would have been fascinating. That would have been so much. That would have been so cool to explore on screen because we see it in the prequel. I mean, in the uh, sequel trilogy, when he's thinking about killing Ben, he has that moment. Yeah, that's a good point. Him. That's a good point. You know How what? awesome would the sequel trilogies have been if the first time you saw Luke was what we saw him in the Mandalorian, where you suddenly see the green lightsaber come out, and he just goes bad a yeah and then um instead we really encounter where he just takes it and he throws it over his shoulder and you're like and that's why i hated it. even though that force projection another change i would have done luke should have had the balls to show up himself in person epic showdown well they definitely need, did not need to kill him off in the no. second i could have been fine if they yeah. killed him off in some dramatic way in the third but I don't understand because it would have been more impressive if they were shooting at him and he was still standing because it was actually him. But but if you know the background, Disney paid four billion dollars so they could have the right for the sequels, and they never really wrote out the story arc. Apparently, the director, yeah, for the third uh, sequel movie, was begging begging the director for Return of the Je uh, for uh, the Last Jedi not to kill off Luke. That he had plans for a whole story arc in the third movie. And he said, no, sorry, he's, he's going to die. And that's why they scrapped I can't them. understand why you would pay that amount of money 
to make these three new movies and you don't have a, hey, this is part one, this is part two, this is part three. Because I was fine with Han dying because that made sense. Yeah, it did. We right, knew like, that, I like we the knew Harrison Ford wanted it. But you know what? I mean, the one thing I appreciate what Marvel Studios did is they basically had each movie was a part of a much bigger sum with an yeah. overarching story arc that had an end. Hats off to them. And I don't understand why they they did. I don't know why they didn't even the try to have that. Trying to do I mean, and, and Obi-Wan. And that's why, you know, we speak of Darth Vader. I hope Hayden Christensen gets that redemption because I don't blame him for Anakin's dialogue. I blame the script. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's know, not a bad and, actor. I don't. You know, I don't blame him and, and um, Natalie Portman's an amazing actress. It, yeah, it and so Ewan McGregor's excellent. Ewan McGregor's Ewan my McGregor's favorite Obi Wan. Yeah, that like, was part of my frustration is they had wonderful actors, but like I said, George Lucas seemed more focused on the special effects than the script. Well, and I also, think was, I wanted if you guys read the books, I'm nerding out too right now. Count Dooku, they explained, was Qui Gon's master and only went to the dark side because he tried to count. He tried to track down. Um, Darth Maul after he found out that he killed Qui-Gon. And yeah. that would have been interesting to see on screen. Well, again, the great, the great, you know, what do you do about trying to get revenge? But here's here's what I know is there there are talks of them making a separate, I've heard rumors of a separate Luke Skywalker movie where they may do a retcon or try to talk about that period of time, how he ended up where he is. Oh, I yeah. don't think we've seen the last of it. They're trying to get Sebastian Stan to play him. Because I, I have heard that. that. I have, I have, I, my brother was telling okay me that, that there's some he's an excellent actor. He looks yeah, my, just my brother like says him. there's some video out there where people basically said this guy looks exactly like they, they Return put of the, the Jedi hair on him, and yeah. you can't tell the difference between Mark Hamill and him. Like it's yeah. by the way, crazy. by the way, you know, probably some of our listeners just like eh, I know on. they did, but I don't care. This type of stuff's fun. Oh my gosh, this is so much fun because I spend so much time in politics talking about, you know, what do you think about this policy? What do you think about campaigns and consultants? And finally, at the end of the day, it's like, for God's sake, show your human. All right, well, I got a question. Who is your favorite character of the sequels? The new character in the sequels. The new characters. Oh, Dameron. Uh, who? Poe Dameron? Oh. Okay. Poe Dameron. Um, I'm going to have to go with... I I liked Kylo. Um, I like... Um, I think Adam, Adam Driver's an excellent actor. Adam Driver's an excellent... And I what I liked about Kylo's performance was he kind of took Hayden Christensen's coldness and rolled with it. There's a lot of visual callbacks to Anakin that right. this kind of DNA of Darth Vader's flowing through him. And I thought it did a really great job. I would say I loved Finn in the first movie. And I was like, he's going to be a really dynamic character, runaway stormtrooper. Yeah, um, yeah. But then they just, now the worst character ever was introduced in this sequel trilogy. And it, she takes the place of Jar Jar Banks. To me, the worst Star Wars character ever was Rose. And then they forced them Hate together them to fisted. kiss. They absolutely- See, my favorite, my favorite character, believe it or not, was Ray because I thought, and I'm drawing a blank on the actress's name. I thought she was utterly big, charming. It's it's really hard to have a screen presence where you're both exhibiting pure innocence mm-hmm. and angst and charm and then strength. 
And I remember when I saw, I, I actually liked Forced Awakens. I know a lot of it was just almost a, you know, a lot of the same kind of plot yeah, lines like of the original Star Wars. But I, I, it was fan service. I enjoyed it. It was what came after that would disappointed me. But um, I enjoyed immensely Ray, and I think that's why I was so crushed. And I thought the whole making her suddenly the Emperor's granddaughter was kind of I weird. I think the Obi Wan thing would have been the way to go. Cause yeah, I think so too. I, I think so too. And listen, even Last Jedi, there was a lot of parts about Last Jedi I enjoyed, but I, I have said. The Mary Poppins in space scene the is Mary like Jar Jar Poppins Banks in space. Bad. You know what yeah. I'm talking about, right, Matt? I know yeah. what you're the talking Mary about. Poppins in space. This to my okay, wife. for your listeners, this is when Leia gets shoved out into deep space by a explosion on the bridge of her star cruiser, and she's literally now. If you know anything about science, I don't know Star Wars is a science, but you would die instantaneously. She's out in space, and suddenly. She's dead, but then suddenly goes Mary Poppins in space, full like Superman, flies she back. She in. would have shattered force or not, and and no. that's why. So I know that, they were that was to that take... was Jar Jar Banks bad. That well, was like, Jar Jar Banks. Bad. I'm trying to think. I always said I was like I know they didn't expect to lose Carrie, but how they kind of dealt with the death in the ninth one, I would have actually killed Princess Leia right there, because that oh, would have been shocking. It would have been like what the hell, like boom, she's yeah. gone. And now we have something to work. It would have for. been it would have been very much a Game of Thrones type death where a major character dies when you least expect it. And, and I, they, I, and I agree. They, and they set that up to be a beautiful, tragic shot. Kylo's got yeah. him in the target, and he's bonding with his mother, his force, and, and yeah. Uh, and he wasn't willing to. He wasn't going to be the one that killed her, and then somebody you else know, did. He's sitting there. He's sitting yeah. there with the thumb on the trigger, and it's like slowly coming down. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it would have been a huge moment. But I yeah, also say one. that if they if they obviously knew that Carrie Fisher was going to pass, yeah, they probably would have been at that moment and then had Luke, I mean, sorry, Mark Hamill be the main character in the third. But, you know, I know there's, I don't know what they're going to do next. I'm somebody's glad they're taking a break. I think they should do standalone movies. I think the TV series, some of it is the TV I didn't series. Hate Solo, by the way. Well, you I didn't can hate it. I didn't hate Solo either, but you could tell good stories in TV series because you have a longer arc. I think yeah. that's part of why The Mandalorian was great. If Love and Baby Yoda's wrong, I don't want to be right, as I like to say. Yes. Um, I got more Baby Yoda merch in my house right now, Matt, than you could possibly imagine. So, so, um, so it's uh, it's just, fun. And, and obviously, love- and now, Matt, you've been to Galaxy's Edge. Have you been to Galaxy's Edge, Mike, down at Disney World? Yes, yes, I have. Because yeah, okay. I so fun fact about me with Disney, I've been twenty eight times. I've been alive twenty eight wow. years. I've been twenty eight times. Yeah, okay, um, I've been seven. And I have gone and I've seen the trajectory of. And now, I mean, they're expanding Star Wars's footprint in Disney, and it's so fantastic. Because I hate as a kid. I did. I hated Star Tours because I felt lies, it, lies. Here's why. Here's why. Lies. Here's lies why. In the Wait, you did not like Star Tours as a kid. Mike. Here's why. Let me explain, Jesus Matt. Christ. I've been 28 oh. times. Hold on. This wow, is what I, I said. Hear this. this is what I said. I, I, as a kid, I felt robbed because now they shook it up. Where now Darth Vader's pulling you. There's different. There's like 108 different storylines. Instead, it was one film. Um, it wasn't C-3PO. It wasn't, they improved it. I like it now. 
But back when I was a kid, it was that stupid robot that they invented just for the ride. No, and it no, wasn't not. canon. First of and there all, was no thrill. first of all, if I could you put barely... Mike on mute right now, I would put Hold Mike on, on mute. Hold on, Matt. I'm an expert <laughs> at this. So we, you barely rocked in the theater. This was early on. It's like the 90s. But that's all that Disney had. Disney didn't have Darth Vader walking around the park. Disney didn't have a show. They didn't have stormtroopers. You just went in this little, you know, Return of the Jedi little park thing. You went in, you went on this ride, and you left, and that was it. So I felt as a fan, robbed because there's so much more that you could do. Now there's so many more options. Now I love it. But as a kid, I wanted to know more, and I wanted to do, like as a kid now, you're allowed to go and fight Darth Vader with your lightsaber. I want to do that now. Like as a kid sitting in a ride with a robot that wasn't even in the movie and you just shift your seat barely didn't cut it for me. Wow. First of all, Mike is wrong. Just completely wrong. Oh. When I was a kid and Star Tours was out, I, did, I, I had an aunt who was like a grandmother because she didn't have kids of her own. And she went with us to Disney and she would sit on a park bench at Hollywood, at MGM then now Hollywood Studios she would sit on a bench and she would say you go ride it and every time you get off you come check in with me if you don't mm. check in with me at a certain time I'm gonna go look for you so I'd run in ride it check in go again I did that probably 10 times that trip just non-stop and so I don't know we have nerded out too much. We, we have, but I think we all agree that part of why Star Wars, and if there's any listeners that have been brave yeah. enough to stick with us through all this, part of what makes the Star Wars universe ultimately so great is it is a story about people that are ultimately part of something bigger than themselves um, that understand that sometimes you have to make great sacrifices, uh, that fighting evil, that A, evil exists, I think sometimes we live in a world where people want to ignore that it doesn't, it's not there, it's there. And fighting evil is not evil. It's not easy. Sorry. Um, and I think it's almost the great human, you know, the, these great stories of, of, of the past of these, in, in the case of, of Luke, but it's people at a young age finding a great challenge. And I don't care if it's Lord of the Rings uh, you find similar stories that that they uh, they go through, and they, their friends become as close to them as their families. Not like to say you can't choose your family, but you can't choose your friends. And um, and then with that comes the the wonder of um, and the fantasy of it all. And so um, it's been part of my life since my childhood. Uh, some of my greatest memories with playing with my brothers and going to see the movies. And I still to this day. Every time there's a new Star movie, Star Wars movie that comes out, I will pick up my daughters an hour early from school and take them to see that on premiere day. And I have to say, if there's any parents listening, if you ever want to get the coolest dad in the year award, start <laughs> traditions like that with your kids because yeah. hey, it's an amazing memory. It's so fun taking them because people will dress up like the last one we went to. People were dressed up like Boba Fett and Lando Calrissian. Oh, yeah. It was hilarious, but. Um, but as part of my great memories too, is be able to pass it on to the next, my, my daughters who love it. They get, they get to tell their classmates when well, my daddy's picking me up out of school early today. So we can go, you know, get my tickets in advance and I leave work early. And um, so it's a special thing. It's special memories. I'm glad to meet two other people that don't think I'm weird to be able to talk about it. You were, you were um, the least bit weird. We have, yeah. we have, um, 
we have other interviews scheduled with statewide candidates and they will not be this fun. I just Okay, well good. Well, hey, it's great that hope you have me again and yeah. um uh happy to uh always go off the beaten path on just pop culture or other other uh other topics, but um, great to join you guys. It was a lot of fun. And I got to say, I've done a lot of interviews and a lot of Zoom calls as a statewide candidate. This was probably the funnest to just be able to, for a couple minutes, Thank you. Thank talk you about so much. Uh, on that. Absolutely. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, we have to say thank you, Delegate Miares, uh, for coming on the podcast. Uh, Delegate Miares is also a uh, little hat tip coming to Southwest Virginia with me um, this weekend. We're going to have a lot of fun. Um, so we thank him for that. We thank oh, him for where can we on. find this information? Yes. Yes. Plug yourself. Plug All right. Yourself so go to my website, jasonmiares.com. That's M-I-Y-A-R-E-S.com. M-I-Y-A-R-E-S.com. jasonmiares.com. I will make sure that my campaign manager, Clark Kilgore, posts. If we don't have it on there, we will post our uh, all the fun stuff we're doing in Southwest Virginia. In the next couple of days as well. Hope to see everybody out there. All right.